its proven value as a tool in the toolkit. It helps identify fraud. There are a lot of benefits to it. We don't want to be handling and touching screens and handling passenger cards as much. We found that public support for the police using facial recognition to catch criminals was actually quite high. Knowing your algorithm really is not a one-time event. It's not speed dating. It's not one blind date and done. If organizations can't explain how it works, how can they confidently explain that to the general public? Obtaining public trust and maintaining a positive reputation is really key for organizations. I'm Isabel Möller, the Chief Executive of the Biometrics Institute. Welcome to the third episode of our On The Pulse podcast. The Biometrics Institute is a not-for-profit organization for people working in or interested in biometrics. And I'm joined here by three of our members to discuss the issues they think will impact potentially the biometrics industry this year. Last October, we published our State of Biometrics report, which highlighted five areas our future direction group felt would change the way we create and use biometrics. And that report is available to our members on our website. So I'm thrilled to be joined by three people, and they are the head of our future direction group, Paul Cross. Paul is a Biometrics Institute director and also the head of the border management Sydney practice for CETA. And then Lisa McDonald. Lisa is the director of the Identity Capabilities Management Division in the Office of Biometric Identity Management at the US Department of Homeland Security. And then our third guest is Stephen Wright, Principal Policy Advisor at the UK Information Commissioner's Office and a member of our Future Direction Group. So thank you all for joining me. And let me start by asking, Paul, you are the head of our Future Direction Group here at the Biometrics Institute. And as I said, uh, there's our State of Biometrics report, which earmarked five topics we thought would be significant to biometrics in the coming months. And they are COVID-19, legislative controls, demographic differentials, which, and we, I know we often talk about this in the media, is commonly referred to as bias, awareness and public perceptions, and digital identity. So obviously it's been a few months now since we published the State of Biometrics report. Paul, I'd like to ask you, do you feel those are still the topics that are at the forefront of our biometrics community's mind? Yeah, thank you, Isabel. Look, I think they are absolutely still the main themes that the uh, that we need to focus on where biometrics is concerned. So the role of the uh, Future Directions Group is to watch this very fast-moving technology, not just the technology, but the events and the policies and the stories that go with it, and basically to identify what's going to be really important in the future. And to look back on last year, you would remember that following a few high-profile stories about the technology being used in some new scenarios and for some new use cases, there was a lot of confusion about the accuracy in certain circumstances and the effectiveness of the technology, especially for face biometrics. We've been using the technology for quite some time in areas like border control, but all of a sudden people were very fearful of it 
and there was a lot of confusion about some of the pilots that had been run. That basically did raise awareness, and we've said raising awareness of biometrics, raised awareness, was one of the themes of 2020. Certainly people knew more about the technology, and that led to much discussion about legislative controls, and that's another important theme that we identified. Obviously, some of the concern was about so-called bias or demographic differentials and COVID-19 disrupted everything, challenged us in many different ways, but it also presented opportunities for making use of biometric technology to solve really important problems. For example, to use the technology for digital identity, and that is another theme. Digital identity is becoming one of the key focus areas for us right now. So yes, I do think we did a fantastic job of identifying the important themes and they continue to be the important themes. Let's start with that first topic then, COVID-19. We've learned a lot since the start of the pandemic. So Lisa, if I ask you first, how would you describe the role biometrics has to play in this changed and really continuously evolving world? Yeah, thank you very much, Isabel. Let me answer that both with a view to the short term and the longer term. Here at the US Department of Homeland Security, we support a very large number of customers with a very wide range of missions with biometrics. Everything from decisions about whether to grant a benefit like a visa or a trusted traveler program to decisions related to law enforcement and national security. We operate and maintain the largest biometric database in the US government known as IDENT. Looking back over this last year, we've seen some of the things that you would really expect to see with travel restrictions, stay at home orders, so on and so forth. We've certainly seen lower transaction volumes overall. In very broad brush terms, in 2020, we went from about 400,000 transactions a day to about a tenth of that, about 40,000 a day. We're seeing those numbers increase again now. We're at more than 100,000 a day and increasing, but that was a pretty significant impact. That 2020 tr trend was not surprising when you think about it. A lot less travel, a lot less international travel, fewer trusted traveler applications, fewer applicants for immigration benefits. But thinking about what we do with biometrics at DHS across that whole spectrum, it's also not surprising that we saw continued demand related to national security and public safety. As one of my colleagues likes to say, crime doesn't sleep even during a pandemic. Starting to move from last year to today to thinking ahead, we've also seen more interest in biometric modalities that can be easily collected at a distance, contactless modalities. And that absolutely includes facial recognition, but also iris and expanded interest in contactless fingerprints, which our colleagues at U.S. Customs and Border Protection are looking at. Our colleagues at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services are also looking at things like human language technology and speaker recognition. And this is exciting stuff. This presents opportunity, both for industry, for commerce, and for government. It's also shown a light on the idea that it might make sense when first establishing an identity to collect several modalities at once. Think fingerprints, face, and iris, and then be able to use whichever modality you want for subsequent one-to-one -one verification. And that might imply that we need to have multimodal collection devices that are more broadly available and more cost-efficient. So to sum that piece up, commonly used biometric modalities that can be effectively and easily collected without close physical person-to-person -person contact are very likely to be in greater demand in the near and midterm. These modalities will probably include facial recognition and iris, potentially contactless fingerprints, potentially also voice, human language, te technology sorts of things. I would also anticipate that there may be an increased need for trusted digital identities 
with biometrics as a key attribute for online services and transactions. Really interesting to get those insights. Um, Paul, let me come back to you. While we need to be cautious of those organizations that kind of promise us this biometric silver bullet to COVID-19, with most of the world obviously currently grounded to a greater or lesser extent, how do you feel biometrics could help us get the world moving again? Thanks, Isabel, and, and, and very good question. And clearly for, for governments, industry, everywhere, restarting borders is critical to, to restarting economies for reasons related not just to travel and tourism, but immigration generally and people moving for purposes related to business, commerce, education, and so on and so forth. And biometrics is absolutely going to be a key ingredient in restarting borders. There was already a strong focus on using biometrics for various aspects of, of travel and border control, as you would know. Um, governments rely on biometrics to secure the border and to provide benefits related to, to service for the travelling public. And, and moving people quickly through airports infrastructure was, was a major priority, as, as you will remember, due to the growing volume of um, travel internationally and the pressures that were being put on infrastructure and organisations with the sheer demand for travel. Well, the pressure is still there. It is not necessarily growing volumes, but it's certainly some of the risks that we face with the pandemic. And um, here I am talking about the need to still move people swiftly and seamlessly through airports to start with. We don't want crowded areas in airports. We want to know where social distancing isn't being practiced. We also want the experience to be more contactless and touchless. We don't want to be handling and touching screens and handling uh, passenger cards as much as we used to at this point. So the physical process of passing through an airport is one dimension of where biometrics will help with a seamless journey. There will be challenges in relation to, for example, mandatory mask use and how biometrics copes with that. So the industry and the uh, providers are focusing on that right now, getting biometrics to work based on eyes, for example, so-called periocular biometrics, identification, identifying people even though they have masks on or identifying that people have masks on and they will need to remove them and they should be told this, mask aware biometrics. There are many points along the, the travel continuum where we need to, to prove identity. And biometrics are already being used by some governments in relation to visa or electronic travel authority application. So we know who is applying and they are using the technology outside of embassies, for example, so that people are supplying biometrics and undergoing liveness tests to make sure they're a real person. We're comparing live capture biometrics to data sources and to the biometric of your face that is stored in your passport. So we're onboarding people remotely using mobile capabilities today. And that will become increasingly important because people do not want to travel to an embassy to supply their biometrics as part of a visa application. And beyond that, of course, it will be important in ensuring that people have undergone the correct health tests and have evidence to show they've achieved a negative COVID test result or that they have a vaccination certificate digitally. Again, people will not want to be manually handling these certificates. They will want a digital form and they will want to know that it was the right person who undertook that test or that vaccination 
who is applying for a visa or an electronic travel authority. And we will need ways to verify identity in yet more circumstances when people travel. And I think people will be conscious that we can conduct these processes remotely using biometrics with a lot of confidence. Thanks, Paul. And of course, we are seeing how our members, the technology providers, are working really hard on improving those algorithms, as you say. So there's a lot of activity in our community. But let's move on to the next theme of the State of Biometrics report. The next section looks at legislative controls. And in the US particularly, the opposition to facial recognition has been mounting over the last 12, 18 months. And of course, there are also groups in the UK and we know about Europe, even Australia, New Zealand, who are calling for a ban on the facial recognition technology or to pause the use of the technology. So Stephen, let me put this to you. What existing controls do we have for biometrics and are there gaps that we need to address? Thanks, Isabel. Well, yeah, there, there have certainly been calls to ban the use of facial recognition technology, for example, in public spaces. And as you have mentioned, this has mainly been in the US and coming from the wider European biometrics and, and privacy community. Um, but in terms of legislative control, certainly from a UK perspective, there is, of course, the UK's adoption of the GDPR and the UK Data Protection Act 2018 that are to be read side by side. But this is in place for the processing of all personal data, and it isn't just bespoke to biometrics, and it also applies to all different sectors as well. So I guess the key question is, well, is this enough? Um, and well, perhaps not. For example, at the Information Commissioner's Office, we have previously investigated and published our findings in relation to how police forces use facial recognition in public. And the Information Commissioner, Elizabeth Denham, uh, recommended a new code of practice to support the existing law uh, to make it clearer to everyone involved when live facial recognition should be used uh, by the police and the law enforcement community. So clearly this in this example the gdpr provides a good foundation but this needs to be built upon if not by separate legislation then by codes of practice and policies for example so clearly there's still some work to do and i would say as a final point it's also worth mentioning that in the uk we have a dedicated commissioner for surveillance cameras and also one for biometrics but as you may know these two roles are to be merged very soon so it'll be very interesting actually to see what the uk approach to controls will be when this change happens and it will be really interesting to see if there's any further gaps that have been identified as well Thanks, Stephen. Yes, and the UK certainly has has been a, a focus for many of our members, what, what is happening here with these various commissioners. And of course, the Biometrics Institute has its own privacy guidelines, and we've just started our review of those guidelines because every two years we are reviewing it and we know how quickly things move. So it's really great to see that there's certainly a lot of awareness of these challenges. Um, 
And last year, there were some bills introduced in the US related to facial recognition, and they included at least one to restrict the use of facial recognition technology by federal law enforcement agencies. And I mean, you just said it, Steve, Stephen, as well in the UK, there was a lot of concern around that particular use case. So Lisa, let me just ask you, what does the legislative framework for facial recognition, if we call it that, look like right now in the US and where do you feel it's it's headed? Yeah, thank you, Isabel, and, and fascinating to pick up on this based on Stephen's comments as well about GDPR and, and the UK framework. And, you know, currently there is no single overarching federal level legislation on face or on facial recognition in the United States. Though it is important to note as well that we do have laws on the books for use of biometrics overall for Homeland Security. And regarding facial recognition, yeah, you're absolutely right. We did see some proposed bills in the last Congress, some looking to restrict use of facial recognition, like the Facial Recognition and Biometric Technology Moratorium Act. Um, we didn't see passage of those bills to law in the last congressional session with the new Congress. Bills, you know, would again need to be introduced and go back through that process. So it's a little bit patchwork at the moment at the federal level. Um, there's been some legislative activity at the state level on facial recognition as well. There have been a number of U.S. states and localities that passed laws over that last 12 to 18 month time frame to regulate or prohibit the use of facial recognition technology. States like California cities in Oregon, Maine, Massachusetts. And at the same time, over the last several years, and I know the Institute knows this well, we've seen some private sector companies like Microsoft and Amazon advocate for facial recognition regulation and responsible use, a principle which I know is near and dear to the Institute's heart. Also, while not specific to facial re recognition and picking up again on Stephen's thread, we are also seeing in the U.S. increased activity on privacy and data protection legislation. At both the state and local levels, uh, for example, state of Virginia in January introduced the Consumer Data Protection Act. If passed, it would create privacy rules for companies that control or process people's data. And at the federal level, including an interesting bill that would, uh, would promote research on privacy-enhancing technologies. And I think this plays into the legislative outlook, both for facial recognition and biometrics more broadly. So what does that mean for where things are headed in the U.S.? That's, that's a great question. <laughs> facial recognition is absolutely a useful tool. It's used here at the department to support DHS missions. It's proven value as a tool in the toolkit. It makes things easier for people like travelers. It helps identify fraud. There are a lot of benefits to it. Convenience, speed, ease, social distance. Accuracy rates have come a long way and they're continuing to get better. That being said, every biometric modality has pros and cons and facial recognition has its pros and cons too. There are certainly some very strong considerations related to privacy, civil liberties, and perceptions of facial recognition technology. So ultimately, I would hope in this dialogue of legislation, there can be a balance of which modality to use and a recognition of the need for that organization in the field, considering their operational needs and their risk trade-offs, to also be part of that conversation. I do expect we'll see additional legislative activity related to both facial recognition, perhaps biometrics overall, and privacy and data protection. But will the U.S. ever see a GDPR equivalent? I guess all I can say there is your guess is as good as <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. It's uh, it's certainly not boring in the biometrics world. Um, so let me move on to the, the next topic of the report, demographic differentials. Um, 
as I said, often in the media, we see this referred to as bias, and that's a created a discussion in itself. But Paul, let me put a challenge to you. Can you, in two minutes, explain what demographic differentials are? Well, in short, we're talking about the relative accuracy of biometric products, and, and in this case, face biometrics, as they're applied to different kinds of people. So people from a different um, ethnic background, for example, people also who are different uh, genders and people who are different ages. Uh, how effective, how accurate is the technology when it's applied to these different kinds of people. And it was a hugely controversial subject in 2019, but then the National Institute of Science and Technology, who are great champions of the industry and really do give us a lot of important guidance, produced an authoritative re report on this problem uh, between different products and um, gave us a methodology and a framework that we can continue to monitor the improvement of algorithms in relation to how they're applied to different kinds of people. It was a very helpful report. And I think it really gave us a key message, which is that um, not all algorithms perform exactly the same way for different kinds of people. And one of the key messages we took from that was, of course, that we should know our algorithm, know the strengths and weaknesses of algorithms and how they need to be tuned as part of an overall solution. Thanks, Paul. It certainly helped. I mean, know your algorithm, but also know your data is obviously the other area. So let's move on. The recent social unrest in the US that we've uh, seen, sadly, obviously here on the media as well, it, it shone a brighter spotlight on fairness. Stephen, let me ask you, should we be using this technology if there are still these questions around accuracy and also cases where policies are really not in place to protect the individual? That's a really good question, Isabel. And, you know, as the saying goes, just because you can use the technology, uh, it doesn't always mean that you should. And when you look at the principles of GDPR, which, you know, are close to my heart, these principles do include accuracy, but it also comes down to necessity and proportionality. So, for example, do you really need to use the technology or is there a more accurate, fair or privacy friendly way to solve the problem? And I think fairness, which is in itself another GDPR principle, will take into account what is fair in the circumstances, but also um, the reasonable expectations of an individual. So if an individual does attempt to break into a government or federal building, for example, should that individual expect there to be systems in place to recognize them for security purposes? Um, and in contrast to that, if you are just walking down the street, would you expect your face to be scanned by law enforcement without your permission? So what is interesting is that the, the GDPR actually actively prohibits the processing of sensitive personal data, such as biometrics, unless the user can demonstrate it is lawful and fair. And there must be impact assessments in place, which we've talked about previously, uh, prior to any deployments and other policy requirements are needed too. So in short, I think I'd say that the legal framework shouldn't be seen as a barrier to innovation, not at all. But it's really important that any use is fair and can be proven to be truly necessary and proportionate in the circumstances. And in some cases, uh, in reality, that might be really difficult to demonstrate and obtain the public's trust. And, you know, as we know, obtaining public trust and maintaining a positive reputation is really key for organisations. 
Absolutely. And yes, GDPR, once again, a helping tool here. Um, the Institute has its own three laws of biometrics that cover policy process and technology. So Lisa, let me come back to you as we're talking about demographic differentials. We stress this importance of knowing your algorithm and the limitations. Um, how do you feel that organizations need to tackle the issue of demographic differentials? Well, firstly, I really love that term, know your algorithm. And if we can extend that a little bit, there's that initial getting to know you phase with the with your algorithm. If you're an organization working with biometrics and have the algorithms and the technology you're using or planning to use been looked at by NIST? And if so, how have they performed? For facial recognition, has the algorithm performed differently in one-to-one -one verification tests versus one-to-many identification tests? And of course, there's that know your data aspect too. How does an algorithm behave in a testing environment and how does it behave in practice with your data on your system? That may not be exactly how it behaves either in a testing environment or in someone else's system. And you have to understand the trade-offs of setting higher or lower match, th match thresholds and to understand what that impacts in terms of false accepts or false rejects and remembering that this has real-world, real-life implications. Frontline personnel are making decisions every day about the people standing in front of them. Want to give them the best kind of response that you can. So this kind of system tuning, algorithm tuning, but on your system with your data is something our operations and IT teams look at on a regular basis. And now we're moving past that first blush of getting to know you and we're realizing we need to know more about ourselves as well for this relationship to work. Your business processes and policies need consideration. You have to look at this as a holistic total system, not just the IT system. You can't just look at the algorithm in isolation. So if we're distinguishing, for example, between that one-to-one -one facial recognition where you're, just, where you're verifying someone is who they say they are and one-to-many where you're probably matching against a really big gallery, are you going to be providing a candidate list for investigative lead purposes for that one-to-many? That's something we do. That's also something done by our colleagues at the FBI. Mm -hmm. How will you be clear about that to the user so that the user on the other end getting the response of this candidate list does not have an immediate assumption that it's near perfect certainty with any given image on that list? Do you have trained human examiners who can step in when they're needed, whether for latent fingerprints, ten prints, or face? And when you're establishing an identity in the first place, what modalities are you using? You might want to consider using more than one, like fingerprint, face, and iris. Of course, there's also the standards aspect of this too. Pose, lighting, expression, image resolution. There's a few things we're doing at OBIM on the standards end. We're continuing to work with NIST to promote the evaluation and assessment of facial recognition technology. We provided NIST with more than 100 million facial images to help them do their evaluations with operationally relevant data for us. We're also partnering with NIST on the development of a face image quality standard. So generally speaking, read the Institute's three laws of biometrics, think about things holistically, consider policy process and technology, absolutely be informed about your algorithm, how it tests out and how it performs in real life, knowing your data. Think about your policies and processes and the role of human examiners. Be mindful of existing standards and work being done to improve them. And keep at it because knowing your algorithm really is not a one-time event. It's not speed dating. It's not one blind date and done. It's a long-term relationship. <laughs> I love how you explain that. And uh, it takes me really into the next topic, which is awareness and public perception. 
it's all about appropriate control of algorithms and data. Privacy and security can and must coexist. When people slowly emerge from lockdown, it would be interesting to know actually if people's opinions have changed over time. Do they trust authority? Do they trust government in the same way that they perhaps did before? What is it used for? Who is it going to be shared with? How is it going to be protected? How long will it be kept? And how will I know? I guess the question then around the public um, perceptions, I mean, how do we get this out there? Paul, in your corner of the world, Australia, New Zealand, Asia, Pacific, Singapore, there seems to be a bit more of an appetite for the technology. Would you say that's true? When we're talking about Australia, Singapore and, and New Zealand specifically, I would say that there has always been a strong appetite for using the technology in relation to border security and border control. Um, and these, these countries, all of them, have very sophisticated border systems. And uh, they've, they've gone through a lot of successful innovation in adopting biometrics. Indeed, Australia uh, was the first country to implement uh, e-gates at airports back in 2006. They've been very uh, successful. And the biometric programs for these countries have absolutely tackled issues related to fraud, but also serious criminality and, and other risks to, to public safety. So where border control is concerned, I think they, they have been um, enthusiastic adopters of the technology. And also um, all three countries are looking at how biometrics will become key components of a, a national digital identity strategy. But that's not to say that they are adopting the technology for all kinds of scenarios and scenarios that might carry more risk to privacy. All three countries have national privacy laws and um, strong controls and governance over the adoption of, of new technology like this. For example, a New Zealand government um, issued its algorithm ch charter uh, last year, and that's been signed up to by 21 different agencies. And it's all about appropriate control of, of algorithms and data. In another example, um, Australia had very thorough public consultations and parliamentary review of an identity matching services bill, which was about cross-agency exchange of biometrics. Um, and indeed, that bill was rejected by a committee so that there could be stronger controls put, um, put on the scheme. So yes, enthusiastic adopters, but not for all um, scenarios and, and very conscious of the risks uh, for some of those scenarios. Responsible use of biometrics is really what we'd like to see, of course. Public perceptions of biometrics ended up here in the courts in the UK, UK last year with a ruling against South Wales Police and its use of automated facial recognition technology. Stephen, how has this case and other influences affected the public's, public's view of biometrics? Well, I mean, I think it's easy for individuals to be influenced or perhaps misled by films, news stories or even social media about how technologies actually work. And we're probably all guilty of that to, to some degree. And in this case, how, you know, biometric data is processed. Now, you know, we've talked a lot about facial recognition and, and the court case was all about facial recognition. So this is a good kind of example to use, I guess. And it was really interesting to see South Wales Police being challenged by a member of the public and civil society group. And it actually brings the issue to the attention of the general public and gets people thinking. You know, it gets them thinking, has that happened to me? Or how does this technology actually work in practice? 
Now, the ICO has actually undertaken our own research uh, to understand the public's thoughts on the use of live facial recognition in the past. And this was actually a couple of years ago, and it's quite surprising how quickly the time, time has gone since. But at the time, we found that public support uh, for the police using facial recognition to catch criminals was actually quite high, uh, but less so when it comes to the private sector operating the technology for their own purposes. So, you know, for example, in shopping centres, shopping malls and things like that. But for me, I mean, I think it's all about balance. Uh, there must be a balance to be struck between the privacy that people rightly expect when going about their daily lives and the surveillance technology that the police, for example, need to effectively use to carry out their role. I think that also places a broader kind of responsibility on organisations to be open and honest and transparent about how the technology works. And if organisations can't explain how it works, and, you know, as we've been saying, they don't know their algorithm, for example, how can they confidently explain that to the general public? Now, we have seen such cases go to court, as we know, but I think we may see more of this type of legal action in the future. And really, as a final point um, in relation to the pandemic as well, when people slowly emerge from lockdowns, and, you know, it's fair to say the UK has been subject to quite significant lockdowns, and, you know, we still are right now, it would be interesting to know, actually, if people's opinions have changed over time. So, you know, do they trust authority? Do they trust government um, and law enforcement in the same way that they perhaps did before? Thanks, Stephen. And as you say, it's not specifically about one modality. It is the risk to the biometric industry as a whole if, you know, there are those use cases that create public fear. Um, you mentioned, you know, transparency, and it seems like such a straightforward con concept, doesn't it? Be transparent about how you use it, how you store the data. Um, but is the balance between privacy and security a tricky one to achieve in reality? And let me ask you, Lisa. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and Stephen spoke very well to this, you know, that... That question of trade-offs and tension between protecting an individual's privacy and the mission or the operational need is really at the heart of this, right? So biometrics have absolutely proven to be an incredibly valuable capability. They can help both enable decisions about whether to grant or deny benefits, like trusted traveler programs, and they can be used to identify individuals who might pose a threat or a risk. And that's where this heart of that dynamic tension seems to be. But really, these things can and do coexist. And what I'd like to highlight here is that privacy is a core element of everything we do at DHS with biometrics. We have a dedicated group of privacy professionals within OBIM. We consider privacy aspects upfront in our planning for any development work or any new data sharing agreements. We have a strong working relationship with the DHS Privacy Office, which provides oversight and guidance, as well as the DHS Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. We have a published and publicly available system of records notice or SORN for our biometric system IDENT. We also have privacy impact assessments or PIAs. These provide information on the biometric data we have and how we use it, and you can get them on the DHS public website. We have to make sure that we're using and sharing biometric data in accordance with the law, with the terms of our sharing agreements, and with our privacy compliance commitments at the forefront. We have more than 45 unique customer organizations within DHS, within the US federal government, with international mission partners, 
We have more than 260 million unique identities in IDENT. So this can get a little bit complex. And I won't say that these things are easy to do to balance or that they're always quick. You know, before we turn on a new capability or implement that a, a new data sharing agreement, we have to make sure we've cleared these privacy gates. And sometimes that can take a little time. So these things might not always be quick, but they are absolutely the right thing to do. And we're committed to doing them the right way. So from my perspective, privacy and security can and must coexist. One more point to draw out here as well. We're very highly regulated in this regard from a federal government standpoint in the U.S. We have a lot of oversight. We have well-established privacy processes and capabilities. But the identity ecosystems more than government. And that, too, is increasingly complex. In the current U.S. framework, we've talked a little bit about that legislative framework, but we don't have the same requirements for private sector uses and applications of biometrics at a national level that we do for, for federal government. So that balance of privacy and data security needs to be thought of in the private sector sense as well as the federal government application. Some great points, Lisa. Certainly they need to coexist, security and privacy. For us, privacy and policy is the first law of the three laws of biometrics. And it takes time to do biometrics. I liked your comparison earlier. It's not speed dating. Let's move on to digital identity, um, the last topic in our state of biometrics report. And this is a fast moving space and some countries are doing it better than others at establishing trusted digital identity. We all said we're not talking digital transformation, we're actually living it. So Paul, can you explain the drive behind digital identities? Yes, we touched on it before, and it's been part of the strategy towards digital economies for many countries for quite some time. And we've seen some fantastic examples of digital identities working for a country like Estonia. And I guess one of the priorities right now is how we provide additional assurance into digital identity schemes using biometrics. Um, it's not the case that simply digitizing some of the national identity models out there right now will help. So I think that the challenge is um, providing remote services to the right person, to a live person, and dealing with some of the environmental factors that we have um, in uncontrolled environments, uncontrolled lighting, for example, can have a huge impact on the effectiveness of face biometrics. And then weaving standards into this so that countries, although they might adopt a national digital identity uh, formula, can deal with other countries that might have a slightly different formula. But certainly um, providing services, facilitating um, a digital economy and, and commerce and, and onboarding people without having to physically require them to, to present themselves and, and show particular documents, uh, which in themselves may or may not be genuine, is the mission right now. And there is an awful lot of energy going on towards that. Yes, thank you. Of, and there's the work as well. Once again, we're doing here at the Biometrics Institute with our digital identity group that is addressing this particular issue around liveness. And is it really you when you enroll someone remotely? Lisa, I mean, how would having a digital identity be a benefit in your or in our day-to-day -day lives? You know, I did a quick look to see if I could find the latest estimates of how many passwords or online accounts the average person has. And I didn't find a full consensus, but it seemed to range from 100 to 200 online accounts with the estimated number of passwords having a similarly broad range. 
some sources indicated somewhere around 70 passwords, some a lot less in the tens or lower because people tend to do what? They tend to reuse their passwords. And of course, this all starts becoming even more important when you think about the fact that online activity for transactions, whether it's government transactions or buying goods and services, has only increased uh, with our current posture with COVID-19. So one potential benefit of a trusted, secure digital identity in day-to-day life is not having to remember all those passwords, or as the case may be, not having to reuse your passwords. And from an organizational perspective and an individual perspective, the potential to enhance security in both directions, like the potential to reduce fraud. How does the organization, whether commercial or government, know that it's, that it's me at the keyboard or the touchpad and not somebody else looking to pretend to be me? So there's certainly that piece of it. A trusted digital identity can also lead to reduced costs. Establish an identity once, then be able to verify many times instead of having to establish an identity multiple times. Here in the U.S., the General Services Administration's login.gov initiative is looking to do just that, to enable individuals to use one account for secure private access to a variety of government agencies and government services. From a broader perspective, There are also, obviously, an increasing body of work on the value of trusted, secure digital identities to provide a means of legal identification to large populations. Things like ID for Africa or the World Bank's Identification for Development Initiative. And according to the World Bank, as of 2018, there were an estimated 1 billion people around the world without basic identity documents, which is a pretty staggering number, especially when you consider that there are about 8 billion people altogether. So the benefits of a digital identity there can certainly include access to services like banking or healthcare, clear socioeconomic impact. Let's consider as well the role of biometrics with respect to digital identity. Biometrics can have a key role to play in establishing that identity. They can be that binding attribute to link the physical and the digital. So lots of potential for benefit in everyday life for virtually any online transaction, whether commercial or government, and many other societal potential benefits as well. Very interesting, Lisa. And certainly, like Paul mentioned earlier, I hope it will find a way that I can travel again and can be a trusted traveler. So, look, it's time to wrap up. um, And let's finish really by looking a bit further ahead. Um, It seems we all agree these five topics are still the relevant ones. But Are there any topics we didn't cover in the current state of biometrics report that you're kind of seeing on the horizon? Let me start, Stephen. Any thoughts? Thanks, Isabel. Yeah, and just to say there were some really good points made by Lisa there. I I certainly know the pain of having multiple passwords. Um, But I mean, let's look ahead to the future. So um, I think for me, quite simply, there should be continued emphasis on accountability and ensuring that organisations can easily demonstrate the need uh, for the technology, but also explain how it works in practice, like we've we've previously discussed. Um, I mean, I think that requirement will be really important in the future, just, just as it is now. But another area really, in my interest would be about how the general public may adopt this technology themselves as personal technology gets more advanced and affordable um, I'm personally curious about how biometric technology may become more commercially available um, and perhaps land in the palm of our hands thanks Stephen well let's ask Paul what what is your view uh, on the future I think there's a couple of things that we'll we'll probably watch very closely, and obviously um, we've heard from from Stephen and and from others about the focus we had on legislative controls. But um, you remember this: the first law of biometrics is that policy is is absolutely critical. The second law is about process, and we should consider process before technology. I think that. 
process and, and general governance over biometric programs is something that we should study. What is best practice where process is concerned? Lisa's mentioned it, the need for thorough review by trained and skilled individuals before decisions are made, decisions that may leverage from biometric technology. What is oversight like where programs and especially government programs, but also commercial programs uh, is concerned? I think that's an interesting area. And I think standards are going to move very quickly. So I think we should be watching standards We've talked about digital identity, but also in relation to touchless contactless, for example, are they going to move? Um, how do we handle biometrics for health certificates? Um, so I think I think there are a couple of uh, areas we'll need to watch closely. Thanks, Paul. And Lisa, what's your view? Yeah, it, building off of what both Paul and, and Stephen had to say, I'm, I'm hearing some themes here because what came to mind for me is that we've talked about legislative frameworks, potential for additional regulation, transparency, governance. With regulation and legislation, I think will come an increased focus on that trust but verify concept. How do you know that the legislation, the regulations, the governance are actually being followed and that they're effective and that what's happening in practice is what's supposed to be happening? Are biometrics actually being used responsibly? In a similar vein, flipping that just a little bit around this question of commercial applications, I think that question of being an informed consumer for use of commercial biometric applications, like using your voice to authenticate yourself to your bank or fast track entry to a stadium, which we can all do safely someday in the future again, I hope, um, will also become even more important as we look ahead. You, know, you can argue that you don't need to know the inner workings of your car's engine to be able to know enough to drive it. Goodness knows I don't need to know the inner workings of my computer to be able to use it to communicate and collaborate. But I should probably <laughs> know enough to ask good questions about what's happening with my biometric data. What is it used for? Who is it going to be shared with? How is it going to be protected? How long will it be kept? And how will I know? So these concepts of education and awareness, both being an informed consumer and that concept of trust but verify with respect to governance, regulation, regulation, those kinds of frameworks seem to be things on the horizon to me. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, all three of you. Certainly words that resonate very much with the Biometrics Institute, accountability and transparency, governance and oversight. Um, education, not only of our members, but even the informed consumer. So there is certainly more ahead for us. Uh, the Institute has the good practice framework, and that's what we are going to use to really work around the education, certainly for our community. We're also looking at a COVID-19 report again, uh, almost a year into the pandemic. Where are we with solutions? There's a lot that has been done in our community over the last six to 12 months even. It is a fast moving space. So thank you all for joining us here um, for this On The Pulse podcast. And for those who are listening to this and don't know us, please do visit our website, biometricsinstitute.org, for more information. And once again, thank you, Lisa, Stephen, and Paul.